welcome. This is an awesome podcast. This yeah. is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> to the Jeff. It's a lot of whiskey, Jeff. Macalino. Jeff Macalino. 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 Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks for popping in. Let's rock and roll. And I have my phone on silent now. So this intro will count, hopefully. <laughs> uh, today's episode, I have a guest from London, uh, Alfie Noakes. He is a, uh, a stand-up MC, promoter, and comedy coach. His big, big thing is, uh, well, speaking English better than me. Again, why am I doing this sober? I don't know. what This whole episode is going to be a sober episode. The, uh, I mean, I may still have some blood alcohol content from last night as I'm recording this, but, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> his passion uh, is encouraging and supporting people who want to get into stand-up, um, or at least... Uh, as he says, it uses comedy, use comedy skills to enhance their private and business lives. He has online courses about writing, performing, and navigating comedy and uh, two ebooks on stand-up. Click the link in the show notes if you have any interest at all. And I highly encourage all of you to uh, to to give it uh, give it a look. Because it does really, I can say this as someone who's worked in an office, uh and I think I say in this episode, even someone who's given a couple wedding toasts, having like basic stand-up skill set is is very valuable. Whether you're doing a presentation, you know, you're doing a PowerPoint at work, uh, you're just speaking in front of the office, whether you're, again, doing a wedding toast. There are so many applications to the skill set uh, that comes with uh, with trying stand-up, even if you just do it a few times, even if you just uh, do it as a hobby, not as a career. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting, interesting and fun way to uh, get you know get your voice out there and uh, get you know hone your messaging. Uh, I'd say, but I'd let Alfie say most of it because he does this for a living. So. Uh, without further ado, well, maybe an ad or two, uh, here is Alfie Noakes and myself. I'll see you on the backside. Hey, folks, you know, I talk about mental health on this podcast a lot uh, with my own struggles. Uh, a lot of times I'll talk to guests about their struggles. And uh, that being said, I uh, want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether that's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professional professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. 
as a bonus, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Macalino. That's BetterHelp.com slash M-A-C-O-L-I-N-O. All right, everybody, I'm very pleased to welcome Alfie Noakes to the Jeff Macalino podcast. How are you, Alfie? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the show, Jeff. Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on the show um, because I, I said to you right before we started recording, I'm a comedy nerd. So the, the, this that makes two of us, uh, two of us. Yeah, th- this might be a very comedy nerd centric uh, episode, but you know what? It's my show, so it can be what I want. <laughs> well, comedy is what I do. I'm not a comedian, but comedy is still what I do. So, yeah, I can play that game all day long. It's very interesting. We'll we'll dive right into that. It's very interesting. Um, the uh, comedy adjacent realm uh, is kind of the thing that fascinates me because I've I've done stand up. I I don't even know. Maybe between virtual and actually getting on stage, probably a, a couple dozen times. So I'm like mm-hmm. I don't. I'm a novice. But I've been on stage at least, so I, I can at least speak to the experience. But um, I found that I'm like, all right, I enjoy more than more than doing stand up. You you might be able to to help coach me out of this attitude. Actually, uh, I enjoy this podcast, which I consider comedy adjacent. It's funny, you know. I go off on riffs that sometimes I'm, frankly, sometimes I'm like, all right, this is a stand up bit premise that i've been working on i'm just going to throw this at the guest and see what what develops um and now i've lately i've been cast in a couple of big roles uh, comedy movies and i'm like that's that's the thank you that's the lane i like to be in i'm like there's a lot of freedom to to being a comedic actor where it's like i can be zany and off the walls and if the director doesn't like it he'll tell me um and that's a lot less pressure for me personally than having an audience tell you whether you're funny or not. It's well, it I depends. Mean, I mean, I yeah, my, my background, you know, just so people know who, who I am, is that you know I run a group here called the We Are Funny Project in London. Uh, I'm a comedy MC, booker, promoter. I run workshops for comedians in all different arenas. I don't necessarily teach them myself. I bring in a range of pros. Uh, and I'm a comedy coach. I've got this kind of bank of of uh, online courses. But prior to that, I was a film journalist for 13 years. I make documentaries about films. I worked on most of the main British TV shows about the cinema. So we'll be doing set reports, interviewing the the stars as they came around, doing the publicity junkets and all. So I'm, I'm deeply versed in both cinema and comedy. And indeed, my my advanced course for comedians is, is I call it the cinematic system of stand up. I realized very early when I was coaching people um, how much overlap there is, because, of course, comedians very often are storytellers, but even an open mic comedian is their own producer, director, their story by screenplay, they're their own leading role. And then, of course, just as with uh, like independent filmmakers, they've got to navigate everything from hair, makeup and wardrobe, marketing, publicity, competitions, all of the stuff, ultimately, you know, agents and so forth, critics mm-hmm. and reviewers. So those things kind of overlap. And when you're saying there, you kind of prefer being pulled up by a director when you're performing a comedic set. You know, that's still quite a hard audience. But, you know, I've been a director and I've watched some of the world's greatest directors, names that you and I both know, in action, 
you know, making their films, you know, 18 months before we get to see them on the big screen. That's still a lot of pressure. You've got all the sparks, the grips, you've got the other cast around you. And if the, if the director shouts cut and wants to go again because you've done something egregious in his mind, you know, that's an audience of its own right. You know, yeah. it really is. There's that wonderful scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, where uh, Leonardo's blown his lines and he goes back to his Winnebago and he's cursing himself out. I mean, a wonderful kind of montage sequence of him kicking himself in the ass because he got it wrong. If you're going to do comedy and you're going to try and be funny, you fundamentally have an audience to play to, whether that's, you know, being large on the screen or whether that's eight wheel people in an open mic room or, you know, 18,000 people at the O2 or Madison Square Garden. You know, there's always an audience to play to. And every time you perform, you want to be you know, paying attention to the responses because that helps you kind of nourish and tweak and move forward. Go, that didn't land the way I wanted. I know there's something good there. I think if I tweak it this way, I can make what's not working today work tomorrow. And then after a time, hopefully you've got something golden. Maybe after a time you realise maybe the original premise wasn't that solid. Time to drop it, leave some space to bring in the new material, whatever it might be. So whether it's comedy on film or whether it's stand up on stage, you know, there's an audience to play to. There's certain methods, techniques and tactics to to make those performances superior. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's interesting thinking of the the difference in my eyes of when you're when you're doing a movie, you are not yourself. You know, I'm not Jeff. I am. You know, this latest movie, I'm Brian. Because you're playing, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, whereas on stage, and I feel like this has been a shift uh, from, not that I followed comedy that much in like the 90s because I was a child, but I feel like there was a lot more, stand-up was a lot more characters back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Who are opposed... you thinking of to, to, to draw that conclusion? Um, I'm thinking of the... Uh, Rodney Dangerfield's the even Larry the Cable Guy, you know the the they're not being authentic to their real person; they're a character basically. Whereas I was, now I feel like the authenticity is what people want. They they don't care. It, it, it's you know. Well, it, it depends which way you take it. I mean, there's any number of fields of comedy. Just as with cinema, there are genres of comedy. So you've got your obs observational comedians like Seinfeld, who was arguably the biggest comedian of the 90s, doesn't right. fall into that character uh, actor you're talking about. But yeah, there's always been the persona comedian, whoever that might be. Most comedians on stage, you know, when I'm teaching people to do comedy, effectively, it's for them to understand that this is you, like this is your opportunity to tell the world what your take on the world is, what drives you mad, what do you like, why do you like it, bring some jokes to that, you know, when else do you get to be the only one in the room facing this direction and they're all facing this direction and you've got the spotlight and you're amplified and for an open mic five, ten minutes, you get to tell them what you reckon, just make damn sure there's some jokes built into it. A yeah. character comedian is very much themselves, but it's just a particularly exaggerated version of themselves and they've got some kind of shell of character on them. You know, Ricky Gervais, you know, obviously the creator of The Office, one of our finest comedians, is absolutely crystal clear that the David Brent character in The Office is definitely him. He's just wrapped up in a certain veneer. You know, we've got Steve Coogan here in Britain, you know, the great, great comic actor who's Alan Partridge, you know, and he's, he's made plenty of films over in America as well. He's also clear. Alan Partridge is a version of him. You can't create this character 
without kind of tapping into the character. You're typically exaggerating elements of your thinking, your persona, to something that might not be recognizable to your partner or your friends, but nonetheless, right. it is a version of oneself. And presumably, that's what where many actors have to begin as well. Right. No, that that's exactly a, one actor. Uh, not that I have a, a storied career at this point, but uh, one actor I worked with said, so he's like, you know, I, I learned that you, you keep a, a certain percentage of the character you play will always be inside of you the rest of your life. And I'm like, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, I first off, I'm like, I don't know if I want that to be the case. Yeah. But second I mean, off, I, I, but I can see the the idea being kind of what you were speaking to is it's already something that's inside of you. You're tapping into, so that character is inside of you to begin with. If you're truly, maybe. But I mean, I will put it that any experience we have had and any emotion we had whilst having whatever experience, banal or extreme that exists within us for all time as well that's true so i think fundamentally what this this person has said yes i suppose when you really examine it it's true but i've got to be honest at first glance it sounds like a wanky thing in actors as to aggrandize themselves yes yeah i agree <laughs> <laughs> i i have the um i also have the um uh the I, I can't think of the right word here, but I'm the actor on set who has never really taken uh, formal training. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, there's plenty of superstars that have walked that route. Yeah, well, I uh, to me now here's the the weird thing is I, this latest film I was I was doing. What's the name of this film? I'm curious. Uh, Haunted Happy Hour. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it's, it's a good a, title. Yeah, it's a, a, a hallmarky kind of uh, film, you know, family-friendly comedy with some ghost element to it. Okay. Um, but it, there's there's a battle uh, between the main character, I'm like the second lead, the main character and his ex-wife, and me and his ex-wife hate each other. Uh, and at one point during the filming, you know, and and I, I I was rude to this actress, like, the entire time she was on set until we were done with our scenes i'm like oh the devil's here <laughs> i i because it helped get me into the mindset i she knew i was joking but at the same time it helped me that was the relationship they were, they they went at each other um and at one point in the filming between takes i'm like i wonder if i'm the villain or she is and the director's like well you read the script right i'm like only the parts i'm in i don't want to read anything that i'm not in because if brian doesn't know it i should you said know that it. You, you said that to the director you only read your parts of the script yeah yeah but, and how did how did the director respond to that yeah uh, well he he's like well what why'd you do that and i i said i don't want to know anything that my character doesn't know so if 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 i'm not privy to what happens in your bedroom i don't want to read what happened in your bedroom because then it might if I, were your if I were your director on that film, I would point out that you need to have an insight what the narrative arc of the movie is and what you're moving towards. So I would have imagined that was a requirement. Um, My advice to you is the next time you get cast in a film, read the whole script. I well, think it can only help you. I, I, see, I, I think it helps to... You need, you need to... Yeah, it, it is true, and I, I can't say... I can't say i didn't know what the arc was so i knew some things 
But it, my thing was don't get into the weeds and what happens that I my character doesn't know about to I bias. don't think that's the approach at all, Jeff. I honestly think it's your job and duty to read the entire script so that you can see where things are going. And also you've got an insight to what your fellow actors uh, arc is. And then in a certain scene, you know, they know that in Act 3, X well, is going to happen. Yeah. If you know that, you can feed them the lines appropriately and so forth. And I don't, you know, each of their own. I'm not an actor. You've just been in the film. So well, well I, I have directed and I would expect my cast to read the script. And well, I, I think there are some films where it, it's probably a requirement. And I think there's some <laughs> where it's probably like a, uh, another one I was in, the guys had dates and we did the guys did not then tell their friends in the film with it so i had to read what their dates were because my character knew, knew it whereas in yeah. this one i you know reading reading the script as the actor you know there, there is the thing you know if you're trying to get an a-list tom cruise leonardo dicaprio you know to in the movie that sometimes when they're given the script i know their pas have like analyzed how many scenes are you in you know for example oppenheimer recently um Kieran's in every single scene of that movie, give or take. So sometimes the A-list will be told, like, you know, you are going to be required on set for 80% of this movie if you're even interested. But I think it's, it's I think it's ground zero. Read, read the script. You'll just have more insight through and through. Yeah, I, I, I can see it both ways. I, I think if if the character is supposed to not know, especially in this case, it was like a romance. About you, how about you act not knowing? That's also uh, an opportunity available to you, but then you still have the body of knowledge to service the entire production. That's true. I, yeah. Well, I, and I don't think I did a disservice to to the production in this instance. I again, if okay, in the prior one, if I went into the scenes where I'm supposed to know what happened without having the conversation on screen, that that obviously would be would be a problem. If I'm like, well, I wasn't in it, so I didn't read it. Well, then how do you know what happened? Okay. Uh, yeah, I think um, you know you can you can act the part of not knowing the, the intricacies of the script for the other characters. I think that's how most people do it anyway. Yeah, I, 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 I'd I've be curious. Of, I've been on a lot of movie sets over the years with some big stars. I I never was under the impression that they hadn't read the whole script. It's interesting. I I don't uh, see. To me, I'm like, well, maybe that's an acting hack. Uh, but but maybe not. and again, it, it wasn't out of laziness. It was a a, a character choice. It was a choice. Yeah. yeah, because it, it's reading the script. I don't need to memorize. <laughs> it, it's literally five minutes of extra work. It's not. No, but, it's, you're re but your filmmakers are storytellers, just as comedians are, you know, depending on your style of comedy. But, you know, by and large, storytellers, it's best uh, if you've got the whole picture of the, the story in your head. And then you, as an actor, you're a component to that storytelling machine. If you don't have the full right. vision, then I think well, you'll be naturally hobbled. But anyway, I made my point. I don't mean to. In fairness, we did have a table read, so it... <laughs> I kind of knew the oh, whole so thing you did anyway. The whole script then. Right? Okay. Yeah, I just, I, I just didn't. So that kind of undermines the last five minutes of conversation. Then. You yeah, I just didn't but... pay close attention to certain details because I'm like, I don't, I don't need, I need to remember, I don't know this. Like in my head, I was actively like, don't, don't commit. You know, I need to look shocked when I find out that he banged his ex-wife. I, I assume okay. that's what happened. I don't even remember now, but that's not because the script. That's because, well, I again, maybe I'm in the minority. I black out any, you know, five minutes after this podcast ends, I'll, I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I talked to him. He was a nice dude. 
What did you talk about? I don't know. Listen to the podcast. You'll find out. <laughs> well, thank God for the recording equipment you have available. That's yeah. And again, that, that may be the, the alcoholism just draining my brain memory away, or that could be normal. I, I don't know. I'd be. <laughs> Is the alcoholism a real thing or just a joke? Uh, I guess a real thing. Uh, you know, I'm not you're looking, dying. You're looking, you're looking very healthy considering. Well, I'm not drinking now. So th there's that. <laughs> well, I guess it's early in your time zone. What time will it, you start? Uh, I, I actually probably won't drink again till the weekend. So, okay. That's good. All right. I've got good, I've got good control over. Okay. So you're not an alcoholic then. And I'm glad that's the case. Yeah, yeah. There's no chemical addiction. It's just I enjoy it. It's it's yeah. it's like a so it's you, like a friendship. So you're an alcohol enthusiast as opposed to an alcoholic, which is much more of a kind of a depressive condition. Yes, actually, the the very first stand up set I did, which completely bombed, was most people's first stand up set bombs. So don't worry about that. That's normal. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was. Well, first of all, it was about going to the doctor and him giving me a test to see whether I had alcohol abuse disorder. Mm -hmm. And the the premise of it was legitimate. He pulls up Google and Googles and gives me a quiz he finds online to see what I'm like. I, I could have found this quiz on Facebook. Like you, you, you're a doctor and you're just going on Google to and giving me a random quiz. And um so that was the premise of it. The problem was I told this story in a five minute open mic and I recorded it and I didn't pepper jokes in because I pulled all of them out because it required three minutes of exposition. It's a little too much in a five minute set. <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, quite understandable. It's a rookie error the first time you get up on stage. And I've watched over 500 people do their first ever gig. So, you know, I'm, I've seen it happen a lot. You know, the first gig is really just about showing yourself you've got the, the courage and conviction to get up there and do it. If you get a couple of chuckles on the way, fantastic, so much the better. But that first gig is just about breaking through the psychological barrier. I can do this, getting a feel for it. You know, at very, very lowest base level, you've got bragging rights that you can say to people at a future dinner party that I want to go at stand-up comedy. Because if you speak to people who aren't comedians and say you do it, you're on stage, they're invariably fascinated and very often a response to be, oh, I could never do that. And I'm on yeah. a bit of a mission to let people know you really could do it. It's it's not so difficult. It's a, it's a challenge of uh, personal courage and adventurousness in the first instance, not so much a creative challenge. Um, and once you've got a few kind of tips, tricks, techniques, you know, it's not that hard to come up with some funny stuff. You know, most of us can reflect. We Most of us have got a few stories we tell in the pub, uh, in the bar. You know, we start a new job somewhere. We want to ingratiate ourselves with new colleagues. You know, it's social glue, isn't it? You know, making people laugh. That's often how we get people to like us. So you just take some of those stories, um, typically stories where something bad has happened to you. Yeah. These tend to be more entertaining to people. You know, it's that classic old kind of silent movie trope of fat man falls over is funny to everybody else. So most people have got a certain amount of material inherently available, just the best story they tell in the pub. And then they can extend that, flesh it out. You know, in my courses, I'll teach, you know, it doesn't take long to come up with ideas. A lot of people can become intimidated because they're like, what do I do? I've got to sit at the computer screen or with a blank piece of paper. You know, and I just don't know, I've got to write a joke. I don't know how to write a joke. I'm like, that's not the place to begin. 
The place mm. to begin is writing a list of kind of observations, experiences, ideas, and a really easy way of doing that is just walk around, you know, just go for a walk for the sake of it, ideally to a place where there's plenty of people. So a train yeah. station, an airport, a shopping mall, whatever it might be, and just look for things that either annoy you or surprise you and jot them down, you know? And if you do this for over two or three days, you'll easily have 50, 60, 70, if not more, little observations and nuances of life and society edit down figure out which three or four or five you find to be the most entertaining you'll find that the jokes and the and the humor come pretty fast and quick to the point that you know you now will get quite a few laughs in your first five minute set it's just about getting the right process really yeah. most people have the ability to get a few laughs if they show themselves they've got the courage to get up on stage which is so wonderful for people's self-esteem you know because most people think they can't do it public speaking terrifies most people to public speak with the mission of making them laugh that's a high bar but it's not quite as high as people think it is actually much more achievable yeah and generally you know people at a comedy club are there because they want to laugh <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah and so if a, they're on the fence <laughs> well in an open mic universe obviously anybody starting out in comedy they're going to be an open mic for a long time yeah now, the audience isn't so invested which is a double-edged sword one side is well they typically haven't paid to get in you shouldn't really be paying for open mind comedy so they haven't laid down you know 20 quid 20 bucks whatever it might be for some pros that they used to because if those guys don't make them laugh they feel robbed and they've hired a babysitter and they've paid for the parking and taken the night out from their busy lives but if they come to an open mic night they haven't paid to get in their expectations are therefore somewhat diminished or lower so when some of the open mic acts succeed and tell some funny jokes, which is very frequent, there's some amazingly good people in open mic. They just haven't tried to or haven't yet had the chance or they've fallen short of the pro circuit. But they've got great five and ten minute sets. Uh, the audience can be very delighted by the high standard of comedy they're getting. And then, yes, a new person comes along or somebody who just doesn't have the chops yet or doesn't have the experience. But if you've got 10, 12, 14 acts on in the night, half and more will be really, really good comedians. And because they haven't paid to get in, they don't mind the fact that every now and again, there'll be somebody who corpses on stage. Don't worry, there'll be another one along in five minutes. And they yeah. won't remember the name of any of the acts. Either the act they like the least or the act they like the most. They won't remember their names right. most. And I've seen this so many times as, as the audience are leaving my shows and I hear them talking to each other and somebody says, who did you like most? And they went, oh, the tall guy with the red shirt. The one guy, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know who did best. I'm watching the audience responses. I know who I want to book in again, and I'm observing who's moving forward. But the audience who just stumbled into the show on this particular occasion, all they remember is, did they have a good night or did they not? And by and large, it's great value night. It's interesting. And again, I don't. I, this is where I get in my own head with some of this stuff. And when when I was doing open mics, there was I had. My second open mic, we there were. I'll set the stage. My first open mic, there were nine non-comedians in the audience, and six of them were friends and family. The the time yeah, I bombed. Yeah. My Put second time, on yourself for your first gig, yeah, a lot yeah. of pressure bringing in your friends and family. Yeah, the worst, and they're not comedy club people, so they didn't even give me like the courtesy laugh that they should give uh, on a case, you know. The but to see laugh has a limited value, I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, on stage, your first time, that courtesy laugh goes a long way. But, but the second time, fifty people in the audience, like legitimate paid customers. I don't know why you know there were that many you know people, 
and I killed and I and I listened oh, back to that set and it was just a great audience. There were a lot of great premises, relatable premises, not a lot of punchlines, but the audience wanted to laugh. They were drunk. Uh, a, a woman in the, the front uh, table wanted to fuck me, I think. Um, that helped. <laughs> but, that's, a, hey, that's, the, a, that's a gentle heckle. Yeah, well, yeah. So the the whole set was about uh, dating apps and me being, you know, divorced and and single and all that stuff. It was very relatable to to most people. Um, and I made it a point from then on. I'd go to an open mic, and every time I'm like, I'm doing a five minute set. I'm going to try different stuff every time. But mm-hmm. a couple times there were fifteen to twenty paid, not you know, non comedians in the audience. I'm like, I'm I'm going to do my dating set because. I know it's funny. I'm making it better the more I do it. And they paid to be here. Like, I don't care if the comedians who are here just reading their notes, not paying attention when I'm on stage. I can bomb for them because they don't care. They don't they don't want yeah, me to yeah. kill anyways. You're not paying. You're not playing for the comedians. You're paying for the real people. Exactly. People so in the room, yeah. if there's real people there, uh, more than more than a handful, I, I'm going to the tried and true. I use that very loosely. But I'm going to the thing that I know works because well, yeah, I'm, I mean, if I may kind of interject, I mean, Please. that's basically the way to do it. You know, by being a new comedian, by definition, all of your material is new material. There's no mm-hmm. way out of it. You've got to get up with the first five best minutes you can do. Obviously, you will be. Re- everybody should be recording their sets and reviewing them because sometimes you get a laugh when you weren't expecting it. You go, oh, mm-hmm. I see. Okay, I can I can build that up or. Sadly, you will not get a laugh when you hope to get one. And you go, ah, well, I realize I gave away too much information in the setup. They saw what was going to happen. Let's just edit that slightly. We can probably fix that joke over the course of a few gigs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think you said you did 24 gigs on and offline altogether, which with absolute respect with me, is, is, is newbie. I mean, I think phase yeah. one of a comedian is probably your first hundred gigs. You know, that's a couple of gigs a week for a year. That's phase one. At the end of that, you might have, you know, the type five, the the ideal five-minute set that gets good, reliable laughs. But I, I strongly advise comedians against, once they're you know, kind of into phase two, year two, 100 plus gigs, and you're very much in phase one, you're, you're clearly accepting of that fact. Yeah. You know, if you've got material that works, or at least you've tried and tested it, and you've got some confidence, you at least know how it's flown 10 times, then I would stick with that, keep honing and polishing it. Maybe it goes later into the set, uh, maybe you can still reduce a couple of words. Efficiency of wording is is obviously highly important. Maybe this word I can I can change it. Use a more evocative word instead of saying I walked down the road. I can say I steamed it down the road. You know, it's it's practically the same number of words, but it's so much more evocative. You're steaming it down the road. That paints a picture. Whereas walking down the road, yeah, okay, it paints a picture, but not a very exciting one. Yeah. So you can be punching your material up like that with each take. But to do five brand new minutes of material time after time, for me, I think is a very uh, unhelpful way of going about things. You really want to kind of put your tried and tested or your most tried and tested material at the beginning and the end of your set. Say you've got five minutes. Were your sets typically five minutes? Uh, yeah, yeah. The The longest okay. was 10, the shortest was three, but the okay, va- so almost I, all of them were five. So the idea of being five minutes, so I would maybe do two minutes of, quote unquote tried and tested uh maybe you've as I say tweaked polished it somehow but you've done you've done a version of it before and then in the middle if you've got a lovely new idea something that's current in you know the current news cycle that you know you just want to get out there give it a try put that as like the middle minute okay 
And then you want to put tried and tested uh, at the end as well. You typically want to begin with your best joke and close with your second best joke. So you mm. leave the stage on laughter or open with your second best and close with your best, whichever. But obviously every comedian wants to leave the stage to laughter. Leaving to silence is, right. is, is awkward. So slap that new material in the middle because by definition, that's the material that's least likely to work in this version. And then you can uh, leave the audience with a sweet taste in the mouth with the tried and tested. And I've seen this so many times. I, I swear to goodness, it, it amazes me. I've seen it so many times where a comedian kills their opening joke they die on their ass for four and a half minutes and then they tell a joke at the end that is also decent and it gets a laugh and the audience seem genuinely satisfied. They are almost tricked into believing yeah. that they enjoyed the full five minutes, which is more than good enough in the early days. Later on, it's clearly nowhere near good enough. But if right. that's what gets you up there and you've got a big laugh at the beginning and the end and that's enough to carry you through, You've been able to try that material going, ah, that idea isn't good after all. Ah, yeah, that idea is good. I've just got to edit it accordingly. I know that I'll see, you know, big laughs in the future. I've just got to keep toying with it and playing with it. But yeah, five minutes of brand new material in a set, I think is uh, setting oneself up for a fall. Um, so just put little chunks of it in, maybe a minute in each five minute set and certainly more towards the middle. I, I I love that because you're you're you you are helping me quite a bit because I have not done stand up now in I think the last set I did was like September of last year, but because of having done it, I have people all the time who are like, I want to do it. Will you go to my first open mic with me? Mm. And 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 they want me to also go on stage. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, but I, I haven't really been working on it. I'm like, but I've got that five minutes that's decent. So I'll, I, I, can, I can tune that up and I can probably still look pretty decent. Because Why don't you do that then? So you've got your yeah. tried and tested five minutes, you know, with absolute respect. It's probably not a watertight five minutes. No, it's not. Nobody is after 24 <laughs> gigs. You know, that's just the way it goes. But maybe one and one and a half minutes of it is. Who knows? You know, it, it varies person to person. But then you could do the thing that I mentioned to you about, like just walk around with your notebook for a couple of hours, looking for things that annoy and surprise you and go, actually, yeah, now I've written it down. Now that's put into words, just four words. I believe that's a common complaint people have and they just never talk about it, you know? And yeah. there you go. There's a bit for you there, potentially a joke, a bit. Just to be clear for your listeners, you know, a joke is a joke. A bit is a, a running theme on that joke. There's no exact time limit, but maybe a bit goes on for a minute, a minute and a half, maybe even two, half, three minutes, who knows? And then a chunk is the biggest version. So you think of like a word, a sentence and a paragraph. You know, a bit is a sentence. A joke is a word. A paragraph is a chunk. So you might be able to find a couple of new bits to put in, keep yourself engaged, keep it fresh. And then go to that gig with your friend, help them get up on stage, pop their chuckle cherry, and then you get back <laughs> on the horse as well. Everybody's happy. Hey, folks, let me tell you about a sponsor for this week's episode, Xsense. Xsense is an innovative company providing home safety products, including cutting edge smoke detectors, carbon monoxide alarms, and other smart home security systems designed to keep you and your loved ones safe 24-7. With easy-to-install devices and smart technology, you'll have peace of mind knowing that Xsense is always on guard. Xsense has tons of products, and this week I'm going to tell you about their alarm listener kit with voice notification. Um, it, it, this kit can, can make all 
uh, listed alarm brands online, including standalone wireless and hardwired models, anything that you already have in your home, this thing, you set it up, it can listen. Uh, when one is triggered, all will go off and it will alert you to the location uh, with voice uh, notification and an app notification. Um, it's a cool thing to have and it will help keep you and your loved ones safe in case something bad happens. So check out the link for the alarm listener kit. Uh, you can get that uh, and get a lot of products from Xsense. And as a special offer for this fine podcast listeners, Xsense is offering an exclusive 15% discount on your first purchase at xsense.com. All you have to do is visit xsense-sense.com and use the promo code Jeff Macalino at checkout. Protect what matters most with Xsense. Because I need to get an oil change on my car soon. And the reason I'm excited is I get an oil change and there's a it's in the same place as a mall which you know are few and far between nowadays in America I don't I don't even know if they have malls in other countries but I love to I I drop the car off they're like oh it'll be 30 minutes I'm like take 90 I want to well, walk around the do, mall you're going to do the gig and then come back and get your car with the oil change well I I walk around the mall and I write down things ah, just like what you're saying I'm beautiful. like one yeah. of the things I'm like, who the hell's in a mall on a on a Tuesday at 11 a.m.? Like, don't you have a job? And I'm like, I'm buying one of laundry. these people. <laughs> you know, who's buying laundry at 10 a.m. in the morning on a Tuesday? You know, you know, yeah. what backstory could that person be? If it's a woman, it's a particular backstory because she's presumably buying for herself. If it's a guy, then maybe he doesn't want his wife seeing what he's doing or whatever. You can build up with that simple first observation: who the hell dot 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 is mm-hmm. doing dot dot dot. There you go. That's a premise for a little joke, a bit or a chunk. It helps keep one re-engaged with the world as well, you know. You yes. know what it's like when you travel, you know, people say a change is as good as a rest. You know, when I walk up and down the high street where I live, I'm never looking up and down and around. And then, because I'm just familiar with it all. Just a, a few weeks ago, I realized that there was a really beautiful kind of Georgian building that went up four stories near where I live. I'd never noticed that before because I'm not engaged the way I am. If I'm, you know, popping over to Paris for the weekend where my head's on a spring and I'm looking around at the architecture and the design of everything as I go. It's a really good way of keeping engaged with the world when you're around looking for the annoying, the surprising, the funny, and then, you know, looking to make those creative juices flow and turn it into material. And as you know, there's few good feelings in this world of telling a joke on stage and getting a big response. You know, I mean, that's the most... That us mere mortals will ever get to feeling like a rock star you know the reward is profound hard to get but certainly doable but really just amazing isn't it when you when you get those big laughs oh yeah yeah I, my my favorite and i i have the horrible uh habit or had uh, i'll fix it if i restart the stand-up machine but uh, I, I did I'm saying not... it as a personal challenge to get you to agree to do another <laughs> gig and take your friend to do their first gig. What I'm, you know, that's a night that your friend will never forget. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I wouldn't be a good friend if I didn't go up and uh, go on stage, but probably before him to. Uh... No, you, <laughs> you've already mentioned that you will forget what we talked about five minutes after this interview's kind of wrapped up. I take so some you notes. Might not, <laughs> you might not remember it forever, but your friend will remember because, you know, it's like our virginity. It's a kind of virginity. 
You know, the first time you do something big, whether it's the first time you have sex or the first job you have, the first person you love, the first foreign trip, you know, these are the fundamentals of a life. That's as we get older, it's harder to do things for the first time. You know, life just comes a little bit same, same, same. You know, mm-hmm. you can't. But the opportunity to go and do stand up comedy, that's an opportunity open to anybody at any stage of their life. And you have the opportunity here to hold your friend's hand, you know, metaphorically speaking, lead them to the stage and see how they do. Even if they don't get a single laugh, you and your friend will be laughing about it either on the way home uh, later that night or if not a year down the line when you're drinking in the bar and go, Jesus, do you remember when we did, you know? There's yeah. so much value in it. I do hope you're going to go and do another set. I see it as a personal challenge to convince you to do it. So if you've got any questions about what would help you be better at it, hit me, because that's what I do. I'm a comedy coach. Yeah, that uh, the uh, uh, now I now I have to do it. I've I've committed this part Good. to memory. So my, my job is my job is done here. <laughs> it's been nice talking to you, Jeff. See you later. Hey, goodbye. <laughs> uh, it, it is. Um, the the comedy coaching uh aspect is, is interesting to me and and frankly a lot of times i'm like may, maybe i'd be better as a as a mentor than an actual comedian <laughs> because i i think that's one of the the maybe this is part of being being a comedy nerd uh is is like the I'm trying to think of the best example, but like Michael Jordan couldn't coach basketball because he was too good. Like, you know, he, I remember he was trying to mentor some young player with the wizards back in the day. And he just got frustrated because he couldn't do something. It's like, well, he he couldn't coach the kid how to do it. He just thought the kid should be able to do it because he could. And sometimes I, I'm not saying that I can't be good at comedy to be clear, but I'm like, Sometimes I think maybe I'd be better helping somebody else and being like, yeah, here's here's little tips and tricks with the words you're using, the order of words. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with the idea that somebody who who doesn't or can't do something can be a teacher. My mother taught me to ride a bicycle when I was a child and she cannot ride a bike. Yeah, mm. So it's evident that, you know, there's that saying those who those who can do those yeah. who can't teach. Yeah. And there's a degree of truth to that, but it's also a little bit pat. And, you know, I I could list a a multitude of exceptions to both sides of that. Um, You know, the reason that I'm a comedy coach is because, I mean, I'm, I'm, if I may say so myself, I'm unique because almost everybody who teaches comedy is or was a comedian and they've got their experience and their path in comedy. And of course, they've got profound and deep insights that they are ready to share. Um, you know, when I was recording my first online course, I bought four, I believe, four other online courses to see what the standard was, just get some ideas, inspiration. You know, one of them was still referencing Bill Cosby as a comedy hero. I'm like, <laughs> my God, you know, this Dated. is so old and out of date. <laughs> and at least a couple of those courses, I could see a certain embittered tone in the comedian. Yes, they'd been on the circuit. It, it, they gave the vibe that they were frustrated at their lack of success. And now they were slumming by teaching. My path's very different. You know, I was a, a, back in the day, I was a TV producer, documentary maker, BBC radio reporter. I did all this stuff in the media, but fundamentally storytelling. And then I found myself through weird circumstances, you know, running an open mic night, did a few gigs as a stand-up. First gig went well. Second gig was a car crash beyond all belief. I think I only did eight or nine. 
find gigs. But then I had a go at MC, and that's where I found my groove. So I brought my TV production experience to the live shows. I was soon running like six shows a week in two venues. Obviously, I brought in some guys, some comedians from the circuit were helping me. Um, and really, I've got this unique position of because I've probably watched more people get get up and succeed or fail either way. I've learned something from like this. Ten thousand people have been on my stage. You know, I've emceed over a thousand shows. Um, so all of this experience, I've been up close personal, but I'm not the one doing it. I've been the one who's got to think, right, they've just tanked on stage. They've not done well. I've got to look after them. I've got a duty of care to my acts. So I'm certainly not going to go on stage and go, wasn't he terrible, ladies and gentlemen? What I've got to do is be gracious and kind to the act. You know, they're already probably feeling pretty bad. They don't yeah. need me putting the boot in. You know, that's a rookie MC that's, that's not kind to their acts. And then I've got to you know, help them feel a little bit better. That's not my first concern, but I do care about that. But I've got to kind of lift the energy back in the room by being funny, often back-referencing something the comedian that's just been on has said. You know, I'm on and off stage 16 times in the show, 25 minutes at the average show. I'm on longer than the headliner when you get down to all stage minutes. And that's, you know, as I say, over a 1,000 gigs. So then I've got to kind of get my head in the stage to the audience, like, okay, what can I do to bring the energy back up? And then counter to that, if an act's done wonderfully and blown the lid off the place, fantastic. But I then have to bring the energy down somewhat and reset and balance the room so that it's a fair playing field for the act that comes afterwards. Right. You know, nobody wants to be the act on after the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. It's a hard act to follow. So I've got this unique kind of standpoint of watching, you know, thousands and thousands of people die the hardest death, rock, rock and roll succeed, try something and fail. But then I'm watching them week after week, or more likely month after month, possibly for years to see how they managed that and changed it and involved it. So I've had this really extraordinary scenario, this kind of position sitting close to so many comedians and watching, you know, many go on to professionalism and seeing what it was they did to get there. And I've also seen some of the most crushing stage deaths possible, which I think in most cases those people can laugh about now, but it probably took them a bit of a time. But in most cases, it's because they were doing something brave and courageous, something a little bit out there. And uh, in many cases, latterly, it turned into something really quite interesting. And I've had the privilege of watching these creative people take a whole multitude of approaches and seeing what does and does not work. It's fascinating. It is. And the, the MC, I mean, you you referenced it. I'm, I'm always amazed at comedy shows. And obviously, open mics are different than, you know, a, a big show where you've got the, the you know, the opener, the 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 middle act, the, the feature act and the, the headliner where you kind of the MC should know what what's coming and what kind of energy they're going to have to to re relate to. Whereas in an open mic, you might get someone who just you, you've never heard of go on stage and just murder for five minutes, like just kill the audience. And then, like you said, you have to bring it down a little bit for the so the next guy has a chance because I got in my own head again, not very new to the process. And I think part of my problem was actually over analysis is getting in my own head and not That's just... a common problem, by the way, right? That is a common problem. And, you know, I think it's just human nature doing its thing because you care. Well, yeah. And then, so, so you, if I was following somebody who was very slow and methodical, I'd be like, all right, don't go too fast. Or they, I might lose the audience because they're, they're, they were just kind of lulled a little bit. Whereas if I follow someone who looks like they just did Coke a second before they went on stage and they're just <laughs> a mile a minute, I'm like, I got to speed things up or they're going to 
they're going to fall asleep when I get on stage and start methodically going through my stuff. Um, and again, I probably, especially for an open micer, it was overthinking it, but I couldn't help myself. I was always like, where realistically, the MC's job should be to even out the tone in between the act. I just took it as, well, this MC is just going up and lazily saying a name and, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would recommend recommend you stay true to yourself i think it's absolutely really irrelevant what the act before you did uh or at least treat it accordingly like i already have a game plan this is the material i practiced it this is the pace you know i got five minutes i know at four minutes and 55 seconds i'm at the line well that's my time ladies and gentlemen drop a little zinger and leave the stage you know um yeah i mean as far as hosting MCing goes I would make the argument is much harder to be an MC in an open mic room than it is in a pro room. And yeah. don't get me wrong, those guys and girls who who MC in a pro room, well, they got there for a reason. You know, to be on a pro bill, you got there because you've already proven yourself to be funny. You've spent the you know hard time in the open mic rooms to justify being there. And they're highly skilled people. I'm not trying to diminish them in any way. They have my absolute respect. But on the format of a show you described, you know, three act bill pros good enough to be paid for comedy it's highly competitive so they're probably going to be very funny all of them at least two of the three are likely to please the audience profoundly and the mc is going to be perfectly competent as well people have paid money an open mic room that in my show i'm probably on stage 16 times i mean obviously it depends on the nature of the show but if there's 14 acts and a headliner i'm on stage 16 or 17 times up and down up and down up and down and there's a significant likelihood some of these acts aren't going to do very well at all. And it's my job to pick the room back up, make them laugh quickly without disparaging that act. Whereas on a pro night, that MC only has to be up on stage four times. And the standard of their acts is so good that they're being paid, the chances are they don't have to reset the room, reset the room ever. They'll just basically host the night, lean on some of their own standing material and carry on. So to be a host in an MC room is, you know, I think a lot of comedians miss the fact that it's the, probably the most important role on a bill, pro or open mic. The MC so sets the tones for the audience and the acts. You know, my duty of care is to act and audience alike, obviously. But, you know, my first concern is the show. I've got to look at the bigger picture. You know, are people running to time? Are we taking the break when I said we would? If somebody keeps shouting out drunkenly, it's more my job than the act's job to handle them. You know, just keep things moving at pace, not set somebody up so the expectations are so high that no matter how well they do, I've built them up too much and they seem like they failed. That was a mistake I made for a while before I'm, I'm bringing headliners up saying lovely things. And they're scowling at me. I'm like, why would you scowl at me? I'm saying such nice things about you. It took me a while to figure out I'm raising expectations to an unreasonable level. You know, so say something nice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. Richard, he's a real treat. Put it, put your hands together and off we go. That's all they need. They didn't need 30 seconds of superlatives and yeah. joyful, you know, um, a vocation from me. So, yeah, it's quite hard on the open mic circuit on a number of levels but there's probably not that many good open mic MCs and if people trained or studied a bit more you know um in MCing then the standard of the shows across the board would improve which is really handy because I've got a course all about how to MC curiously enough 
Yeah, I, 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 I was, I was thinking as you were saying that, I was thinking that that would be its own course. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's available. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very niche, but it's, um, it's helpful. If there's, if the MC is bad in an open mic room, it becomes an uphill battle for all of the acts. Um, you know, I've, and yeah. I've certainly seen, and also sometimes bad MCs in the open mic rooms. You will never see a pro MC make this mistake, which is where they just start laying into an audience member for no reason. They might tease an audience member to some, that's that's a given. But being hard, you know, destroying them, unloading on an audience member, we MCs, we only save that for people who are behaving very badly. And they've typically been given more than one warning just to rein it in. Right. And the sad truth is some open mic MCs think that is part of the job. And what they do is effectively just start verbally abusing somebody for no good reason. And that makes the rest of the audience really anxious. They're like, well, look what he just said to that poor lady over there. He might say that to me next. And now I'm not relaxed and enjoying the comedy. Now I'm anxious in case some freak just starts hurling abuse at me. And it's yeah. detrimental to the whole show. The audience aren't relaxed. It's not fun. It's got like this nasty edge to it. And worse than anything, the audience leave. We need to cherish our audiences. This is the grassroots of comedy. The audience leave going, well, look, he didn't say anything to me tonight, but I'm not coming back again. I don't want somebody speaking to me like that. And that's completely reasonable and right. Yeah. So it, it's actually a detriment to building audiences on our circuit. And I've seen it far too many times when, you know, some rookie MC thinks that's the job. It isn't. It's a role you may have to fulfill very occasionally if some member of the audience proves themselves to be a mouthy asshole. And it doesn't happen very often at all. To the point that they just don't need to worry about it, but bad MCs bring it to the forefront. Sadly, yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I think some comedians have the opinion that everyone in the audience wants to be part of the show, um, and some people do, and I think they yeah, make they themselves well very obvious. <laughs> well, a, well, a good MC has some ability with body language, which again is yeah. in some of my courses. You know, if they've got their chin down with a your throat covered and their arms folded across and then kind of looking sideways at the stage, not head on. Guess what? That's a body language clue for please leave me the hell alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so leave them alone, because even if you do engage with them, they're going to give you monosyllabic one word answers. And that's no good for the fun of the room. You're not going to get any crowd work or repartee with somebody who's just going, no, Dave, <laughs> Manchester. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Nothing. OK, so you've just embarrassed them, slowed down the energy of the show no good for anybody equally i think as you were just saying then there's some people who seem just too keen they're practically waving their hands talk to me talk to me those pe people are crazy okay and they should <laughs> never be spoken to either okay they yes. probably have a secret agenda that they've got something funny to say even though they're not a comedian they're an audience member or they're trying to show off to a girl or a guy they're with it's typically a guy trying to impress a girl by experience it's often a guy within a group and he wants to impress his group of friends that he's wild and wacky and dangerous enough to do this, um, you know, completely oblivious to the fact that he's been detrimental to the show and slowing <laughs> things down. So really, as an MC, you know, you you get you get to pick up the body language cues, the vibes of who's up for it, but not desperate to be up for it, because avoid desperate people in, in probably every circumstance of life, not just from the yeah. comedy stage, you know? That's the... Um... I, if, being an alcohol enthusiast, I would definitely always hit mm. the bar after I did the open mic. So I would did Uber. Did you ever hit it before? Did you ever hit it before? Yeah, yeah, pretty much all the time. I, oh. I actually found, and this is absolutely a crutch, but, but 
I never took the stage actually feeling any intoxication. And I think part of that's adrenaline, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I found my act did a lot better when I brought my my glass of whiskey and put it on the stool. Um, yeah, because it's like a warm blanket. It's like the it's a touchstone yeah. of familiarity and, well, and with your level of enthusiasm, a little bit of love. Yeah, and a lot of times I, I reference being, you know, an alcohol enthusiast. So having it there is on brand. But also, you know, you flub a word, you know, you just in normal conversation, you flub a word, you know, yeah. an easy, cheap like way to joke. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, <laughs> everyone, get, everyone chuckles because it's like, yeah, we've all been there and I'm just going to blame I, this, even if it's my first drink. I'm just going to be like, ah, I'm just a drunk. <laughs> I advise acts against drinking before they go on stage or at least if they do just keep it to one okay i'm no mm-hmm. purist don't get me wrong at all I, i'm definitely no purist um but anything much more than that is often likely to make one's reaction just that fraction slower and a fraction of a second can be the difference between a, a witty re- response uh flowing your idea delivering your set at the pace you planned it um so a little bit of dutch courage a little bit of just relaxing one drink is good after you've been up have at it you know the bar are always grateful when you buy more drinks you know and Obviously, it's not just about performing on stage. You know this. I mean, if you've done open mic and you're an alcohol enthusiast, as I think we branded you, um, you know as well as I do, you know, half the fun of the fair is having drinks with the other comedians, you know, after yeah. the show and, you know, chatting about whatever, each other's sets, what you think, shit behind other comedians' backs, you know, talking <laughs> about the latest Netflix special, yada, 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 you know. It's not like comedians are short of things to talk about. They're not short of opinions by and large. It's not long before you... You know, done a few gigs, been to a few venues, you start seeing a few familiar faces. You know, it's a right. very easy thing to start making new friends. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. But uh, there, uh, you you can quickly tell the the people who want to make new friends, the co- comics who want to hang out after, and there mm. are comics who they do their set and they are out the door. It's like, all right, don't yeah, that they, person they usually... is here not to make friends <laughs> yeah there's, there's, there's i mean there's many many types of people in comedy i mean so, so let's look at the two you've just mentioned there so the person who just kind of did their set and and either leaves straight after their set which i think is terrible form in open mind comedy you people stuck around to watch you you should stick around and watch the other acts it's not right that if at the beginning of the show let's say you've got 20 real audience and 10 comedians that means you've got 30 people watching you. It's not fair if at the end of the night, one person's left with just 20 people because you're the nine comedians, you know, yeah. run away after their set. I think that's just really, really rude and bad protocol. Um, but, you know, some people, um, they've got a, a job. They've got an early start the next morning. Some people have a maybe a wife or a husband who isn't that supportive of this hobby of theirs. So the best way they can mitigate it is to get back at a reasonable hour, not right. this drunk. Um, and then there's other people who, you know, it's a hobby. You know, this is what they do. Some people play golf, some people play basketball, some people play rugby, some people like cooking, whatever it might happen to be. For some people, this is what they do. An awful lot of people in open mic are really good and have been doing it regularly for years, but they never really have professional aspirations. It's just they found their crowd. They like all the other acts trying to make them laugh all night. They like this feeling it is when they make other people laugh. I mean, that's even better than being made to laugh, as you know. And then, yeah. of course, they've got their, you know, their clique or their crowd or their friendly faces to drink with in the bar afterwards, talk about what they've just seen or anything else they like. You know, it's a great social scene. And if you're a drinker, so much more. Yeah, yeah. It, it uh, Drinking makes everything better. So <laughs> uh, it, it is uh, the, the reason I guess I'll, I'll preface 
the the reason I started doing stand up and actually the reason I started this very podcast was I was writing a screenplay basically and I'm like in my head it's a dark comedy and then I read it and I'm like it's just dark there's no there's no jokes there's really very little humor in this thing so I I basically took it upon myself to reach out to dozens of comedians and be like hey how do you make things funny and, and what advice did you get? Almost every single actually, Doug Stanhope said, "Just first off, just commit yourself to finishing what you're writing." That was his advice, which I I haven't really followed. But pretty much everyone else, their advice was, go on stage and do stand up. And I, I, I probably sixty to seventy percent of them also said, start a podcast. Just cat. They're like, you you never need to make a dime doing either of those things, but you go on force yourself to go on stage for an open mic you'll figure out a way to 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 find some funny things use yeah. that when you read your script think how can i make this dark thing how can i punch it up basically uh and that was pretty much unanimous advice of you know hey you don't need to be any good at it you don't need to make a dime doing it go on stage and and try to make people laugh and the podcast was a similar idea of you're going to want to entertain people. So at a certain point, you know, whether it's premise ideas uh, or whatever, and, and still in my head, I think I I still want to use stand up to help write things. So in my head, I'm like, well, if I just tell a story that I want to use in a script, just tell it, you know, and then next time let's, let's figure out ways to change it and make it funnier and then develop it. I'm like, I feel like you could write a scene in a movie honing it by getting real-time feedback from an audience um obviously stand-up and cinema are two different venues uh but yeah but i mean i'm i'm pretty well uh i mean i mentioned i've, I've written this course yeah that shows how to use filmmaking techniques so for example then you write a scene of dialogue between two people let's just say for now it's a husband and wife who are having an argument okay so you can actually write that scene as though for a movie you're trying to make it funny, yes? So then you take that to the stand-up stage and then you act out that scene and you literally act out. You do the acting. Yeah. You change 90 degrees angle and you you acquire the body posture of the, of the female, the wife, and then you uh, put on the voice and then you deliver her line and then you just spin 90 degrees back and suddenly you're the man. You take on his posture and poise, deliver, the voice, deliver his lines in the masculine voice. You can ramp up and be all raspy and geezer like or whatever it is you want to do these are your choices but you can see if the lines are hitting and it will give you an insight as a director and a screenwriter as to whether i'm on the right path here so you know one skill set often punches up the other there's so many transferable skills from stand-up comedy you know yeah. at the end of the day it's public speaking with laughs and so yeah. many people have to public speak whether they're managing a small group of people at work or they're doing a massive trade conference they're a politician, whether they've got to present to camera every now and again, you know, every, not every, many businesses have YouTube channels and podcasts now. Any kind of presenting skill is supported by doing stand-up comedy. Ultimately, it's about being amenable, presentable, speaking clearly, hooking interest right at the beginning, getting a laugh at the beginning and thus being liked, you know, planting the seed for something that is interesting, but you're not going to reveal until later and then leaving on a high. You know, that's a perfect good structure for a comedy set, five minutes or, you know, 90 minute Netflix special. That's very long for a special, by the way. 
Um, <laughs> can be, you know, these can be transposed to all sorts of writing, performing, public speaking, life coaching, actors. As I mentioned, I was a TV director, which meant I was dealing with all sorts of TV presenters. Back in the day, I was nowhere near in comedy, but three or four of my better presenters, these are very famous people in, in here in England, you know, they had a background in stand-up comedy. And I found that stand-ups were very good presenters. So when I got more developed in my career, I would sometimes hire a, a stand-up comedian that I'd seen in a professional room to present a show for me, even though I had never, uh, even though they had never presented before, because they've got the chops, they know how to hit the marks, deliver the line, memorize the material. And frankly, if they're quite new to the game, you know, this opportunity that pays a lot of money, gives a lot of profile, they'll work really hard than a long in the tooth jaded, you know, presenter. There's so many opportunities that open themselves up when you're doing stand up comedy, whether it's a skill set or some of the, you know, the wide, diverse range of people you meet. I'm so delighted you're going to take your friend to do their first gig. Uh, is yeah. it a male or a female, may I ask? Uh, male. It's a male. Okay. So you're going to take your mate, your, your, your guy to, to do his first gig. You'll be part of his audience, and then it's going to be your return to the stage as well. That's fantastic. I'm delighted to know that's going to happen. Yeah, now I, 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 this conversation's got me excited for it. I was dreading it a little Excellent. bit, but now My job I'm... is done. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you. It works. Uh, speaking of, you know, you and and your coaching, where can? Oh, by the way, I have to throw this in. Anyone who's ever giving a toast at a wedding. Just go do do a few open mics mm, and you will not be right. nervous at all. And you will come off as the best wedding toaster in the history. You don't need to even be good. You just will have the poise and the delivery. It's a wedding. People want to laugh at your like it's a very happy audience, you know? No, You're not you make a very good you make a very good point. I mean, uh, I don't know if you can ever quite get rid of the nerves in most people's instance, but certainly mitigating them you know having done a few open mic gigs and then doing something like a best man speech you're right that best man speech becomes so much easier i'm not saying it necessarily makes it wonderful and there'll be no nerves but it'll be so much easier probably that bit funnier but not such an intimidating experience oh, yeah. i did my first best man speech long before i was in comedy and i was really quite intimidated by it and then the second time i was the best man i'd probably been in comedy for about four or five years and i just crushed it i mean it was just the water off a duck's back it was such an easy experience yeah it's so it's so a good way easy. of getting a rain on nerves you know managing one's kind of uh getting scared and one's nerves you know builds up confidence doing stand-up comedy yeah yeah it it, it really yeah it, it, it was it, it turned a dreadful experience into oh well this is really something i could do in my sleep at this point yeah, this is easy um where can people find you and your coaching tell tell me all about that uh, well, pretty much everything's there at wearefunnyproject.com. Um, there's an ebook that goes to new subscribers. I'm going to change it. I've written a new one recently. Currently, the free ebook is Eight Problems Comedians Run Into and How to Handle Them. But I think in the near future, I'm going to replace that with my new book, which is Eight Ways to Turbocharge Your Stand Up Comedy. And then there's uh, click clickable links in there that takes you to. Uh, sample sessions from my online courses you know that's free but it gives you a taste of what's there some kind of essential and basic information to help people hit the road running but there's a free blog on there you know i've been writing that for two or three years now so there's lots of free info uh, sample videos from the courses and then people can buy just a beginner's course uh the advanced course the beginners and the advanced course just coaching i'm getting quite busy with the coaching now so i may or may not be able to uh accommodate people on that uh, immediately in the near future 
but it's all there on the website buy a course buy coaching buy a blend of whatever suits them is available but yeah get up on stage people there's a lot to be enjoyed Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and obviously uh, all the, uh, the link to the website will be in the show notes folks. So click away and, Appreciate uh, it. yeah, like Alfie said, get on stage, just have fun. It's a story. I, I, I think that's part of what you said. It's a story you'll have for the rest of your life. Just, yeah, yeah I did stand up once. <laughs> I would urge people to try and do it at least five times. That yeah. first time is about kind of breaking through and just going, okay, I can do it. So, you know, I've shaken off the biggest scares but doing it at least four or five times because that way you get feel for, actually, I changed that joke slightly or, oh, that joke worked in this room, but it didn't work in the other room. Is that because it's a different audience? Is it because there's a high ceiling? Is it because the MC's an arsehole here and the one there wasn't? You know, there's all of these variations. It's, you know, there's recipes and ingredients to writing and performing comedy, but also the places you get to perform in as well. So doing it once, yes, you get a bragging right, but I think it's a hollow one to, you know, say I once did stand up. But I think if you've done it at least five times, you've at least given it a reasonable shot. If you then decide it's not for you, so be it. But um, my experience is an awful lot of people get the bug after four or five gigs because that fourth and fifth gig, you've got every chance of getting a handful of laughs and that's just magic. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is something special. Uh, Let me know I'll... how your friend gets on, please. Sorry to speak over you. No, Let me yeah. know how your friend gets on. I wish him the very best and send him to the website because honestly, there's a ton of information for him that'll help him, you know, get ready for his first gig. Yeah, and I'll make sure uh, he and myself record our sets because yes. that's that's a mental note for me because I am Absolutely. terrible at remembering to just <laughs> click voice recording. That's all you have to do. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for having me on the show, Jeff. I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate your time, sir. Yeah, me as well. Thank you, Alfie. That's it. That's all. Hope you had a ball. Thank you, Alfie Noakes, for joining me. And click on that link. We are funnyproject.com uh, in the show notes. And uh, check it out. And, uh, you know, thanks again for Alfie for joining me. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much all I got to say. So here's the normal plugs for me. Subscribe to the YouTube, the social medias. There's X, there's Facebook, there's Instagram. Uh, I don't know. There's probably something else down there. Just click all those links below. Uh, click the Xsense link to get yourself the uh, the listener kit. Um, <clears throat> next week, I, I, I'm going to warn you up front, next week is a, a great episode um fair warning uh and it's different than any episode i've recorded thus far i would say it has a lot of the same um notes to it uh if it was a i guess like a musical song um but it is outside of the box uh former guest of the show if you follow me on instagram you already know who it is uh joins me again and um it's a long one, and I, I even debated making it two parts, but I think it's better as one digestible thing. Now, you can listen to it in parts. That's your choice. That's why I put these episodes out Monday. There are some podcasts I listen to where, you know, I basically listen to them in segments. You know, this episode that you just listened to, I feel like is a good one, you know, probably going to end up being 115, all things included. It's a good one listen, digestible episode. 
Um, the, the next one, I think it is a great two, two and a half hour listen. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to be offended if you chop it up into 30 minute segments. Um, but that's up to you. You know, you control you. You do you. Um, yeah, we'll stick with that. You know, another thing that's interesting is I, I had a um, somewhat similar to, to Alfie in my quote unquote debate uh, early on in this episode, um, but a, a different one, I guess not really that similar, where I was getting in an argument just last night with a buddy about something political and we were arguing, well, he should have done this and he should have, if he did this, it would have done that. And he disagreed, you know, in essence, you know, we disagreed on something that should have been done by a certain former, uh, politician, we'll say. And, uh, I go take a piss and while I'm taking a piss, I pull up to get his initial, the guy's initial comments on this subject, and he basically said verbatim what I said he should have said. Yet me and my friend, because this never made it onto the news networks, so we never knew it, even though this person was president of the country, and we probably should have known that he made the speech he made. Um, we never knew it. Now, that's because the media lies to you and you know doesn't want to show you the, the stuff that a certain former president actually said something that I never thought he would say, but he did say it. But we spent 15 minutes arguing about something that he should have said that he did say, but we didn't know he said it. So I don't know what my point is. It's, you know, don't get too bogged down and into your debate when you've got your info box in your pocket that might say, hey, hey, you were you were wrong for, or you were not, I was not wrong, but... I was wrong in thinking he didn't do what I thought he should do. He actually did. I just didn't know it. And neither did my buddy. So interesting, interesting note where it's like, well, the last 20 minutes of our lives were a waste because um, this was just information that we never knew about. I don't know. Those information boxes in your pocket that probably give you testicle cancer, testicular cancer. They're, they're a handy dandy piece of information. All right. Boom. It's over. Thanks for listening. It was amazing. <laughs> I I loved it. Be sure to come back for another great episode. I'm one wing away from Jeff Macalino. Of the Jeff Macalino Podcast. How much time did you spend on thinking of the name of your podcast? You want to just straight, that's my name. I'll add the word podcast to it. Yup. See you next week. Thank you.